Welcome to the Bully Pulpit from the University of Southern California Center for the Political Future. Our podcast brings together America's top politicians, journalists, academics, and strategists from across the political spectrum for discussions on hot-button issues where we respect each other and respect the truth. We hope you enjoy these conversations. Hello, and welcome to the first installment of our three-part fellows, CPF Fellows Roundtable Series. My name is Harry Burke. I am the Fellows Manager here at CPF, and I'll be moderating today's discussion, which will be broadcast through Facebook Live. It will be an episode on our podcast, The Bully Pulpit, which can be found wherever you get your podcasts. Today's discussion will center around American democracy and our governing institutions. Distrust among Americans towards Congress, politicians, and democracy in general has left many feeling disenchanted with our system. And today we hope to delve into these and other surrounding topics and engage in fruitful conversations. Today I'm joined by our three fellows. Shiniko McClendon is the political director at Crooked Media and before that worked on Capitol Hill serving as policy advisor to Senator Kay Hagan and legislative director to Congresswoman Alma Adams. Todd Purnham is a renowned and longtime journalist, recently writing as a staff writer for The Atlantic and California Correspondent. He's also been a senior writer at Politico, contributing editor at Vanity Fair, and was formerly with The New York Times, where he worked for 23 years. And Barbara Comstock is a former member of Congress from Virginia, where she served from 2015 to 2019. And prior to serving in Congress, Barbara was elected for three terms in the Virginia House of Delegates, and she's currently a senior advisor at Baker Donaldson focus on technology issues. We are going to have a couple live questions from USC students who will become short-term panelists. So I'm going to start with America's favorite Article One branch, Congress. Uh, historically, Americans have always distrusted the national legislature. I think that's almost a part of our DNA. The high watermark of the last 10 years, I think, was around 2009 when congressional approval ratings, I think, hit 39%. Since then, it's fluctuated, but it's gotten from that high to as low as 9%. People cite different reasons for this, I think. They don't get anything done in Congress. They're too partisan, overpaid, no term limits, et cetera, those kinds of things. So I'm going to start with a broad question, and I think our panelists has a lot of great experience inside and outside of Congress to talk about this. Why do we think there is so much distrust um, and negative feelings towards the branch of government that's supposed to represent the very people that are expressing these opinions? I will start with Barbara, since you did serve in Congress, and then maybe we'll go to Shaniko after that, and then Todd. Well, I, I think we always have a philosophy in our country of questioning authority, and I do think right now there's a distrust in a lot of institutions, distrust of, our, you know, of religious institutions. We've had scandals and things there. I often note, you know, I'm both Catholic and a Republican, and both my party and my church have its challenges, but I'm, I'm still sticking with both. We always have the, that type of dynamic. You know, we've had uh, police and law enforcement institutions, things have happened there. I worked at the Justice Department back in the early 2000s where we had a lot of corporate fraud investigations. Remember, we had Enron and a lot of big scandals there. So there was a lot of distrust there of institutions. These things come and go. And, you know, sunshine is always the best disinfectant for all of these things. So, with government and whether they're going to be trusted, I think their, their needs, particularly for Congress, they need to have more oversight. I used to be chief counsel on the oversight committee when I was in Congress. And I think that something like, say, the January 6th insurrection here now needs a lot of 
oversight and bipartisan analysis, subpoenas, follow the money, follow the phone records, go and look at everything there to see what brought about this. And I think a lot of that will be these conspiracy theories, the distrust and all these things that have gotten out of hand. And we've got to really go at that aggressively and, you know, fact check that and have it be, you know, the media involved, but also institutions and make sure it's bipartisan and have particularly people who might have been sucked into what's essentially a cult or a conspiracy coming out and, you know, working with us on getting, getting you know, better information sources. So I, I think it's something that goes beyond government in short. So media is very distrusted. Right. Shaniqua? Yeah, no, I think all of those things are right. Um, and specifically thinking about Congress, I think a lot of people, I think there actually has been a lot more light shined on what they do. Uh, and people are seeing that not a lot is getting done. I think back to when I started working on Capitol Hill, which was in August of 2010. That was a few months before the Tea Party got elected. And it was also around the time that earmarks stopped. Uh, and so it was basically my introduction to the Hill was the end of President Obama or the Democrats having the White House in both chambers. So I got a little glimpse into what that looked like, but largely my six years there were nothing happening. I worked on education policy and saw three times we tried to reauthorize No Child Left Behind or the Elementary and Secondary Education Act. And finally on my way out, that happened, but it took six years to reauthorize that bill that had been expired for some time. And I think as more time has gone by, people are in real need. You know, inequality is at, um, is at one of its highest points and people are seeing that the government is not responding to that especially right now during COVID, people know that more people than ever need relief. They need money, they need uh, rent or eviction protections, and they're not getting that. And so I think what you're seeing is a lot of people realize what government is supposed to do and not seeing it happen. I think another part of this is a lot of our elected representatives are not actually representative of um, the country. And I don't just mean that from kind of a racial aspect. Uh, I'm specifically talking about being aware and going through what everyday Americans go through. If you are not working a minimum wage job, you might not understand why the minimum wage needs to be raised. If you own your home and you know there's no threat of eviction or foreclosure, you might not understand why people need those protections. And so people are literally seeing that the government is supposed to serve a function and, and it's not being served. And the other part of this, and maybe this is personal perspective, but as I went up on Capitol Hill, unfortunately, you become more senior, you start to see how things work, you see the good things, and you see the bad things. And I did start to see the role that money played. I saw decisions made sometimes that were based on what donor was going to cut a check. And that's not always actually most of the time, that's not in line with what constituents need. And so I think as more of that is getting out into the world, um, as we have access to technology, people are seeing what is and is not happening and who has a seat at the table and who doesn't. And I think that is why you're seeing this great level of distrust within Congress as an institution. Um, well, I think Shaniqua and Barbara are both right. And, and Barbara's certainly right to point to a lack of faith in all institutions in modern life. John McCain used to joke that the approval ratings for Congress were so low that it was down to paid staff and blood relatives who actually thought Congress was doing a good job. But I think Shanique was also really right when she points out that our representatives in Congress today and Congress broadly 
doesn't really represent the views of the American people. And you can see that on issue after issue, from gun control to the public approval of the pandemic relief package that President Biden proposed, to any number of policy choices, immigration, you name it. The public, over and over again in surveys, shows that it wants something to be done. And it has a broad consensus, basically, on what needs to be done. But because of the narrow ways that congressional districts are drawn, so there's redder and redder and bluer and bluer, and the fringes in both parties have louder voices, and greater capacity to instill fear in the hearts of a member who fears a primary from the left or the right and not a loss in the general election. There's no structural incentive to work to the middle. There's no structural incentive to work to compromise. So again, I mean, whether it's Parkland or Sandy Hook or the Charleston Church shooting at Mother Emanuel, there's obviously big, broad consensus in the public about what sensible steps could be taken on new federal gun control laws. And yet nothing important has happened. And that has to me to do all with, yes, it has, Shanique was right, the power of money, the power of interest groups, the power of powerful donors. But it's really that the way we choose our representatives, particularly in the House, but also in the Senate where the small states under the Constitution have disproportionate power, it's out of whack. And our politics these days are parliamentary. Our politics are really suited to the kind of system in which there could be a no-confidence vote and a government could stand or fall instead of waiting for the arbitrary nature of four years presidential election because our system of government is constitutional and it's not susceptible to parliamentary ups and downs or sudden shifts. But I think that um, we have to figure out a way, and I don't know whether that's through efforts at nonpartisan redistricting, the kinds of things like in California, we have had some success here with this nonpartisan commission that has taken redistricting out of the hands of partisan legislatures. But I think the problems, Harry, you're right to say, are not personality-based by and large. They're structural, and they're deep, and they're going to take some serious long-term work to handle. I agree with everybody, and I especially agree with what you said, Todd, about the parliamentary outside kind of butting up with our constitutional system as well. <clears throat> and it kind of leads to the next part of the discussion I was hoping to get to, which is, you know, some different ideas out there in political science and public discourse about ways of addressing this lack of trust or lack of feeling of representative in Congress. The first idea that I've seen floated around, and I think Barbara, you as a former member of Congress would, would probably love this idea, I, I think, though I don't know, I'm not sure you might not, is, you know, the average number of constituents in a congressional district is something like almost a quarter million people, 700, something like 700,000 on average. It varies from state to state, obviously based on population, but that's about the average for all 435 members. I don't really think that's what the framers intended when they made the House representatives. I thought that even James Madison had included in the original first 12 amendments that would have been the Bill of Rights, a congressional uh, apportionment amendment, which would have capped congressional districts at, I think, 50,000 people. Now, I don't think we could do that today because that would mean we'd have about 6,000 members of Congress. But that idea of you know expanding the number of people in Congress, I wonder what we think about that, where people might feel they have a much more direct connection to their representative when nowadays it's a little bit more, it's a little bit longer of a connection because there's just so many people that you might need to represent. So love to start with Barbara, then Todd, and then maybe Shaniqua. I actually don't support, I, I represented, I think it was 800,000 people because I had one of the growing districts. So at the end of the redistricting period, you know, if you have a growing big district, then you're representing more than the average. But I don't think that's so much the problem because 
I think a lot of the things that we work on can also be devolved down to the states. And having been a state legislator, I would say state legislatures are much more responsive and they have the ability to be more responsive. So I think, you know, like on on things like how we're dealing with COVID, on education issues, on unemployment, when you can give more power to the states to decide those things, I think that is a good thing. And so that's been something probably Republicans are more inclined to say, let's have more power at the state level. And I don't mean it in the bad way of states' rights and overruling anything like in the civil rights area or other areas, but on things that really are local, like schools and um, you know transportation issues and getting more control. I mean, we did that with welfare reform where we gave money down to the states and I said, okay, you guys go at it and come up with creative things. And if you end up saving money and getting people back to work, then you can use it for other things like daycare and job training and things like that. So I do think moving more to that will be more helpful because I know when I was in the state house, I could get, it was easier to get a bill passed and often you weren't so much focused on some big, huge bill, but it was something that just solved a problem there and you could do one base hit one year or another base hit the next year. And it wasn't this whole, you got to get everything done. Cause I know when you're talking about some of the issues that never get done and to bring up two pretty controversial areas, immigration reform and gun control, there is a pretty strong bipartisan support for red flag laws. You know, after incidents in Florida, Rick Scott was the governor, conservative Republican. He signed a red flag law. Now there are some of the conservative groups that don't like that, But there was support and bipartisan support for that in Congress. But sometimes both sides would rather have an issue to run on than have a solution. And that was a solution when we talked to governors in conservative states like Indiana, liberal states like California. And then, of course, they did it in in Florida. We saw that that was something that actually really worked and and was able to, you know, a quick solution to get the guns out of the hands of really dangerous people. But oftentimes people want to raise money on the issues and the political parties and political leadership would rather have the issue to run on. Immigration reform, the same thing. We had a bill, I think it was in 2018, that had been a bipartisan bill that was almost like what the Gang of Eight had run on, you know, like when Marco Rubio got attacked by Donald Trump, you know, on, on that bill. We had something where the pre- where Donald Trump had actually said, okay, I'll support something sort of like that. But then the Democrats didn't want to come on board with us, even though it, for those of us Republicans who wanted to do it, because they'd rather have the issue. And then, of course, we had like the Freedom Caucus guys and that crowd not wanting to do it. So, so often when there's something in the middle that would be supported by a majority of people, the parties and the institutions do direct you away from that. So I, th- I think getting things more down to the state level, it's easier to put together coalitions at that level and get things done, which is why you see a lot of red flag laws, for example, passed over the past few years, even in uh, pretty conservative states. Immigration, we can't do on the state level, so we need that to be resolved on the federal level. Uh, what do you think? Well, I think Barbara's absolutely right about the question of both parties sometimes preferring to have the issue than to resolve it. They want to campaign it. They want to raise money. They want to have the moral high ground as they see it. But on the question of size, I mean, I think the problem here is 
and at large, the at large representative in Wyoming, member of Congress, single person, Dick Cheney used to say it was a small delegation, but it was quality when he had the seat. It looms much, much larger in the political consciousness of Wyoming than my first job in Washington was covering the New York, New Jersey and Connecticut congressional delegations and issues in Washington for the New York Times. And the loneliest, hardest members of Congress in some senses are members from big cities, Los Angeles, Boston, Chicago, New York. In New York, you know, you're one of 25, 22, 23, 24 members from New York City. And unless you're, you know, Chuck Schumer or Charlie Rangel or a very senior person, it's pretty hard to stand out, pretty hard to get on the local news, which is a very big market, pretty hard to advertise, very expensive. So I think the real issue there is the incredibly disparate nature of those districts. In some places, 750,000 people is the whole state. In other places, it's a small part of one big city. So it's a little bit unbalanced in that way. I think, practically speaking, it would be hard to argue that you could make it any bigger than 435 people and have any, any chance of getting anything done. It's hard enough to get anything done with 435. So I'm not sure that expansion of the membership in itself would, would do much good. I think it, it has to do more with um, somehow, sounds like pablum, but making each member more effective and, and more responsive to his or her own constituents and, and also to the larger picture. And, and, you know, maybe part of that is devolution to the states when appropriate. You know, 60 years ago in Congress, when Hubert Humphrey was a progressive Democrat in the Senate, his opponents used to say that he has more, more solutions than there are problems. So sometimes, you know, less could really be more in terms of interventions by the Congress. But, but I, think, I don't think expanding the membership would be any kind of a magic bullet or, or particularly practical. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, and yeah, I just, I, logistically, it seems impossible to have uh, more, more folks in Congress um, just thinking about like, where would their offices be? And that's a handful of staffers for each person. Uh, but I also don't think it would solve the problem. Thinking proportionally about Congress and the group of folks you have on the far left, uh, moderate Democrats, moderate Republicans, and then the Republicans you have on the far right, I think we would just grow those groups proportionally and still see the same gridlock that we're seeing now. And as long as people, polit or I should say politicians, um, in, in a fair amount of states, but even in states that have independent redistricting commissions, politics is normally a part of that process. As long as politicians are still deciding what the districts look like, I think you'll still see uh, the gerrymandering that we see now that contributes to a lot of um, the partisanship that exists in Congress. When you can make sure on both sides, Democrats and Republicans, that most of your caucus is in pretty safe seats, that can happen with, with you know, 10 members or 10,000 members. And so I don't think we get around that. I think uh, as both Barbara and Todd mentioned, we need different incentives. Right now, elected officials are focused on getting reelected. And that is important if you want to further your agenda or whatever it is, you know, you want to uh, Congress or just elected in general um, that you want to, to work on. But if you have to keep prioritized getting reelected, you do need something to run on. And that, you know, going back to your first question, that's why nothing's getting done. If people always need something to talk about on the campaign trail, they're going to keep, uh, you know, creating an environment where they have something to talk about. And I don't know how, in my head, as a voter, I want to vote for people who get things done, not people who, you know, have great talking points about why the other side is bad or, you know, why it's the other side's fault that they can't get anything done. But I'm wondering 
I don't think I'm the only one. You know, I think politicians are responding to this incentive that isn't actually there, especially in the time that we're in now. If elected officials said, hey, these are the concrete things that I've brought back to my district, um, and, you know, not just renaming a post office, but actually concrete things that change people's lives, I do think they would be rewarded for that. And the easier government makes people's lives, the less they are thinking about government and more likely probably to reelect the people who have kept things easy, kept things good uh, versus what, what we're seeing now. And then, you know, thinking about our state legislatures, um, that is for states that, um, that politicians are making those decisions about redistricting, that is where, um, you know, that's where those decisions are being made. So I think we're going to have to see some reforms at that level. Me, particularly, I think, I don't think state legislatures should be drawing anyone's districts, not theirs, not uh, the U.S. House of Representatives, but we're going to have to see something change there. But I don't think increasing the membership is going to be the way that we fix any of those problems. But one, I'll, I'll point out one of the things with the, the whole redistricting, which we're coming up on now, we're going to be a more integrated country. We're going to be more purple because the country is becoming more integrated every year. Geographically, racially, people are moving around and living different places. And I think post-pandemic, you're going to see more of that. And I think there's a, I, I think there's an overemphasis on redistricting. And I'll just use the example of Virginia. I went to the state house in 2009. We were able to draw our line. Republicans drew the lines, and we also, during the years of Donald Trump, lost our House seats, lost our state legislatures, the House and the Senate under the lines we drew because there was a different. You know, the, the state grew, populations grew. And the, the issues change. So even with lines that have been drawn by Republicans, I mean, we had to draw them within regulations and rules and everything. But it, it, you still, there's only some, but people pick where they live too. I mean, you can't go into New York City and you could not draw a hard red district in New York City. So, I mean, people live in a certain place, but I think that's going to change now. I think technology is part of that. I think because of the pandemic, people are moving around. And that's why you see places like Georgia change and be more blue now because more different group of people are moving in there and it's not what it used to be. And the same thing with Arizona. Um, We certainly saw that in Virginia, North Carolina seeing it. And then the states where people are leaving, then you have a different demographic of people who are sort of kind of the left behind who are a little bit lost in the new economy and thing like, things like that. So there's going to be a lot of changes that are just people pick and choose and move, you know, with their feet and pick where to live. And I, I think sometimes people overestimate the redistricting because you can't, you can't, you know, redistricting doesn't even apply to states. So there's no issue statewide and that's how our founders made it. But even district by district, there's less of that, um, I think that really makes that much of a difference. I mean, Jim Jordan never passes bills and his, his district apparently doesn't care. Louis Gomer doesn't pass bills. His voters don't care. There's nothing you can do about making his voters care about those things. That's who lives there. But their districts probably are also districts that are shrinking. And now they're going to grow into areas that people might have. So they're going to maybe have a rude awakening that as they have to grow and be an 800,000 district instead of maybe a 600,000, they're going to meet a lot of new people who don't think doing nothing is a good idea. Yeah, I, I just, I think one 
I, I'm from North Carolina and those, the people who draw the maps there are some of the craftiest people in the world. And so I do agree that the pandemic and demographic change make a big difference. But in North Carolina, we've seen multiple times more Democrats vote and Republicans still have a majority of the seats in the delegation. After redistricting in 2010, we went from seven Democrats and six Republicans in a state that is pretty much 50, 50, um, well, there's independence too, but you know, Democrats and Republicans are pretty equally represented in the voters. But by the end of the redistricting process, once we had elections, we had three Democrats and 10 Republicans. So um, I think it definitely depends on the state, but I can guarantee that Republican maps that come out of North Carolina, despite the demographic change and everything we've seen, they will find a way to... Uh, to, to well, the courts, the courts did have an impact there, too. So there still is, if you don't draw them right and within the guidelines, you're going to lose seats, which, what, they lost two in North Carolina because well, of Well, yeah, but like eight years later. Yeah, yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah, so another idea that I've seen researched on is this idea of thinking about a different way to have people be representatives in congressional districts. So instead of having one member, single member, winner-take-all congressional districts, enlarging them and making them bigger to cover these more diverse, different types of people. You know, maybe the district will cover an urban suburban area with some rural parts and having multiple members represent that district. So in a sense, when there'd be a winner take all system and somebody wins by 51%, you know, the idea being that 49% that didn't vote for that person might not feel like they've got somebody representing them in Congress. And so opening it up to multi-member districts and making them larger might help with the issues with gerrymandering because it'd be much harder to gerrymander those types of districts because there'd be a wide array of people. So I'm wondering what you all think about changing something maybe from a single member winner-take-all system to more proportional representation. Let's uh, start with Todd on that one. Well, I'm not an election lawyer and I'm not a constitutional scholar, but I I wonder, the first thing I wonder is whether that would run afoul of Baker versus Carr, the Supreme Court decision on one man, one vote, one person, one vote. And I have to wonder Again, I just come back to this logistical question of it's tricky enough with 435 people. And, and by the way, this is not, it's not a, it's not a non-trivial consideration, but the current chamber really is pretty bursting with 435. So like you'd have to put them someplace else or have remote voting or I don't know what you do. But I think, I know, I know you're going to, I think you're going to ask later about ranked voting or bullet voting so-called. That could be, to me, a more practical answer than I, I just don't see multi-member districts. I, I think that would be uh, sort of not in the broad American tradition and would would have a hard time get, getting traction. Barbara? I'm actually not a fan of, of the proportional. We used, we used to have in Virginia on the state level, and I'm not a fan of ranked choice either. I mean, I think our system works. I think it's what are the people going to demand? And, you know, we have a, we've had a pretty big turn, you know, a lot of these members are new. You don't have a, a, a huge, you know, when people talk about term limits, the people are the term limits and they've been, you know, we, we have a pretty inexperienced group of members in there right now, most of whom haven't been there for longer than six, eight years or, or less. So I, I think it's a matter of leaders coming forward and saying, this is what we need to get done. Here's how we can do it. And, you know, providing some bright lines, I think we're seeing that. I mean, you know, I'm proud of my Republicans who, you know, on the impeachment issues, you know, got out there. But also, you know, Adam Kinzinger is pointing out things like, you know, Republicans can't keep running on fear. You can't be afraid of the future. You can't be afraid of 
technology, afraid of everything that's happening. We've got to have policies that kind of embrace the future and move us forward. And I think think that's what's missing often. But that can change on a dime with just a handful of people coming forward and providing that kind of decisive leadership. I think part of the Trump phenomenon was people responding to maybe that absence of leadership. And while that was a mistaken direction to go, and certainly not the direction I'd like to go, I think that was sort of the vacuum that was created, he stepped into. And I think we've seen, you know, certainly I think a large majority of people don't want that to happen. So now what is the positive bringing people together and getting things done solutions? And I think the public and a majority of the public will reward people who kind of get away from this left and right and kind of what moves us forward now instead of this divisive stuff that we've had for the past really two decades, I think. Yeah, no, I completely um, agree with that. Um, And like Todd said, I don't know why I'm so concerned about the logistical nature of having more members in Congress, but it just, it feels like too much. Because it's bad enough as it is, I think. (laughs) I know. There's already, you know, hundreds of people. Think about your high school class. I had a high school class and a college class of 500. Lots of them I never knew because they weren't in my classes. That's how Congress was. There were lots of members. I couldn't pick them out of a lineup still. And now, you know, with all the new people, I don't. So if you had more, we'd really be in trouble. When I was in the Statehouse, I knew my 100 members pretty well. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, that makes it actually harder to just work together. If you don't know a lot of the people that you're working with, there's absolutely no incentive to, you know, hunker down and try to figure out a compromise on something you're working for or toward. And I completely agree. I do think that this model would help uh, solve the gerrymandering problem. And you would also kind of force candidates to care about getting as many votes as possible, not just the most. So that you can, you know, I guess have a greater, I'm not sure how it would work if you got like 70% of the vote, if you would be the only person there. But I think it would make people more inclined to actually want to make all of their uh, voters happy and constituents happy, not just enough to get them reelected, which is what you see in gerrymandered districts where a district might be, you know, 65% Republican and then 35% Democratic. And, you know, in the middle somewhere, you have folks that may switch uh, which party they vote for, but there is absolutely no incentive to care about the votes of uh, those in the minority in your district. But yeah, I just, uh, I just can't get my head around more people in Congress. A lot of voices already, I think maybe. (laughs) So we're going to go to our first live question, and it's going to be from Gabe Romero. So Gabe, why don't you ask us your question? Over the past couple months, I've seen like a couple polls and some studies um, showing that I think it was like one of them was 60 or 65 percent of Republican voters would leave the Republican Party for a Trump party. And there's another study that showed more younger people today don't think democracy is essential. So I'm wondering, given those two data points, one mainstream party is kind of sort of radicalized against democracy. Should we be taking that radicalization seriously? Is it a serious threat? And if so, how seriously? I was just going to say, I think we should absolutely take this seriously. What we saw on January 6th was the exact result of, you know, people being told essentially to not honor our democracy and the election that had happened and the actual results we saw. And they stormed the Capitol. I think that that is the most violent outcome. But I think across the country, you're seeing states 
put voter suppression um, bills, you know, up for a vote. There are, I, I can't even remember what the latest figure is. I think it's over 100 bills around the country are um, focused on limiting people's ability to participate in our democracy. And at some point, what does that turn into? At some point, there's going to be a very small group of people who have a say on what our country looks like, who's, in, you know, who's leading our country. And it may sound very theoretical and abstract right now to talk about democracy as this concept, but it is what makes our country, I don't know if work is the right word, but it, you know, it's what gives it the potential to get toward um, something good. And if we don't have that, I've never, you know, lived anywhere else aside from the United States. But from what I see, I would much prefer a democracy, but I want one that functions appropriately. Um, and so I think we should definitely take it seriously. And, you know, I would love to talk to some of those younger people who don't think democracy is essential. I, I know that there's a certain level of certainty that comes with um, other forms of government. But uh, I guess I just don't have enough experience to trust that it's a country I want to live in. And I, th- I think a lot of the focus in the media may, and, and rightfully, you know, with, with the insurrection, with everything going in there, has been on the right. But there is this distrust on, on, on both sides where people want to sort of have some, somebody on top do something. And I want, you know, and I, I think sort of like trying to get rid of the filibuster or, some, or, or try to, like, they don't want to have people working together. They just, okay, we got 51 votes. We want to slam through everything and get through everything instead of saying, you know what? This will be better if we actually have people working together and come up with a compromise and have something that has a little bit, you know, of everybody in it. And, and that's what I always saw at the state level is, is those, instead of trying to always have the base hits and trying to get everything, you would go to the middle. I, and for example, like Justice, uh, Chief Justice Roberts in the Supreme Court, that's something he's kind of famous for doing. He always tries to get more of a consensus in his decisions, which means they're much narrower decisions, which probably is a good thing because you get a more consensus opinion there. So I, I do think there needs to be investigation of these, this radicalization, these conspiracy theories, this just false information that's out there. One of a former Republican member from Virginia, Denver Riggleman, is very active on that. He's writing a book on that. I do think this January 6th commission investigation needs to address that. Um, but I think it's something that's bigger than just a partisan thing. It's kind of like if, if you can't get everything you want, then everybody wants to have some top-down solution. And democracy, you know, it, it's a good thing, you know, from the ground up is always better. Any, and, 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 just, and, and I think the one thing Donald Trump did is they're voting and active. I, and I, I think Republicans, for one thing, should be supporting that. I think Virginia, I mean, not Virginia, Florida has a great model of allowing people to do lots of absentee voting and having good voter participation and they had their votes all counted on election night. And Jeb Bush got those rules in place over the years after the debacle in 2000 when, with the recount and all. So more states could have a model like that so that everybody would feel comfortable that the system works and you know the results. And you've given everybody the opportunity to vote, whether it's seniors voting early or people able to vote from a nursing home or overseas, military, making sure their vote counts. You know, I, I think the more people we have participate in the system, the better. And we, we should all be supporting that. Well, I think everything that Barbara and Shaniqua said is true. 
And and I think that, you know, I, I don't understand why if you can vote early, the count can't start before Election Day as well in a secure, confidential way so that on election night or the morning after you can have real time results. We produce that in almost every other sphere of life. And I think having long delays in the count is something that, you know, leads to suspicion. Shanique was absolutely right. I think the Brennan Center at NYU has just done a study that shows there are about 100 pending laws now around the country aimed at making it harder to vote. Now, on the question of radicalization and support for violence, I'm not sure about the methodology, and I've seen some polls here and there, and maybe the results are a little sketchy, but it has been unnerving to see polls that show large pluralities of Republican support for violence if the outcome of the election is not as you want it to be. And that is really fundamentally at odds with everything we're supposed to stand for. And the notion that really, frankly, any American voter anywhere would support violence if the outcome goes against his or her preference is sort of chilling. And I think that it'll be hard. You know, the papers today are full of commentary from members of the 911 Commission saying how what an extraordinary bipartisan effort that was, partly because politics stopped at the water's edge and the country was attacked as a country. But I thought Tom Kane, the former governor of New Jersey, had an interesting insight. I think he told the New York Times that for counsel of the commission, they got something like 10 recommendations, and they found that every person had actually been quite involved in partisan politics, so they found the 11 who hadn't. So I think staffing up this commission and getting a membership would be crucial. But I, but I think, you know, we absolutely have to get to the bottom of this radicalization of certain other institutions, whether it's law enforcement or the military, or the notion that these institutions that are intended to protect all Americans may be being infiltrated by people who have what would have been considered very recently extremely fringe views and ones who could have been, you know, reflexively, automatically weeded out of these institutions. The notion that there are people, the fact that there were military veterans in tactical gear who came with kind of malice aforethought to January 6th suggested in the active duty ranks there, there may well be, must well be similar kinds of people. And I think getting that problem addressed is going to be a really serious problem for the future leadership of the Pentagon and the Defense Department, and frankly, for law enforcement agencies all across the country. Because it's no slur on our law enforcement community to aspects of law enforcement or criminal justice, prison guards, you name it. There has always been a part of those jobs that attracts people who have an unhealthy affection for authority or lording it over other people or whatever. There's always been a, a problem about psychological screening to get those people out of the ranks. But if it's becoming anything like the scope of the problem that these recent events might have suggested, I think that's, that's something sort of new under the sun in American life and something we need to pay close attention to. Thank you, Gabe. And then our next question, I'm going to ask our next questioner to introduce yourself, your name and your major. Hi, I'm Christian Patel. I am a communication major at USC and I'm a junior. Great. And what's your question? With only seven Republican senators voting to convict Donald Trump for inciting insurrection, there's no reason to believe that 10 Republican senators would ever cross over and join 50 Senate Democrats to invoke cloture and pass the John Lewis Voting Rights Act and the For the People Act to protect voting rights and institute fair redistricting. Given that political reality, do you think Senators Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema will vote to abolish the filibuster to pass the John Lewis Voting Rights Act and the For the People Act? Or do you think they will let these reform bills die instead? Oh, they, they don't want to support getting rid of the filibuster. But see, that's an example where, okay, you know, you have a bill that had, and, and, you know, there are components of it that you probably could get a lot of agreement on. It may not be every aspect of the bill, but 
in order to, you know, get some improvements, let, you know, go through that and get a group of people who really are bipartisanly committed to improving that and figure out what you can do that doesn't, you know, because there's more agreement than people will realize, but, but that would be an example of if they just say, well, no, nope, we have to have this whole bill like this or we're not going to do or we're going to abolish the way we operate, that's going to, I think, lead to more ill will than to sit down and figure out, can you get half of this bill? Can you get two-thirds of this bill? Can you get the real heart and soul of it that you want to have and then maybe leave some of the other things to the states to do and improve on and then maybe demonstrate that we, we change those things later or something. But I, I think particularly in that area, you, you'd be well advised to get, I, I think you'd have enough people to, to get something that would, that would work. Who do you think those 10 Republicans would be if only seven voted to convict? Well, you don't have to have, t- well. You would need 10. If, if that was the one bill, you, if you were only going to do that bill, but if you worked on a bill that was a compromise bill, beforehand before you went through that process then you you get those 10 republicans through working through that bill and finding the elements that you can find people who agree on if you just start with that assumption that there's you're never going to get that i i just don't agree with that i think you know we passed in virginia when we had kind of a supermajority we incorporated the ideas in this because voting was a really serious thing and we wanted to make sure everyone was included. So when we tried to do some voter ID things and there were problems there, we went back and we reworked it because we we wanted to have this be something that people had a trust level on. So yeah, you're, you're just assuming that that's the only bill that you can have in that form. And what I'm saying is you can have something that has a lot of those ideas in it that could find the support of more people. Nico? Yeah, I think, <laughs> I think uh, that, Barbara, I think you're just a better Republican than some of the folks who are in the Senate right now. I think that if, if you could not get 10 to convict Donald Trump after he literally incited an insurrection that put their lives at risk, I, I'm not sure what they will support. And unfortunately, voting and democracy, you know, voting rights and democracy have become a partisan issue. In a perfect world, you know, we wouldn't even have to break the bill up. You could just say, Democrats could say, hey, you know, we wrote this, we're in control, but we want to work on something together. Let's compromise. But Mitch McConnell literally tried to prevent Democrats from formally taking control of the Senate if they did not agree to not end the filibuster uh, in the next two years. And trusting Mitch McConnell I think would be crazy for Democrats at this point. You know, how many Supreme Court justices have been put through with just 50 votes? And if we can decide who our Supreme Court justices are without 60 votes, I, I just don't see the point in not making those decisions about our legislation, too. Right now, we have a 50-50 split. Vice President Harris is the, is the tiebreaker. There are some Republicans, as we saw, you know, the seven who supported conviction. Um, and we've seen Republicans come. We've seen members of both both parties kind of support the other um, parties' uh, policies. And so I think that is what we should more so be focused on. I don't think we're ever going to get to a point where every member in the Senate is only going to vote the way that their party wants to. I also think we'll never get to a point again that enough will 
thoughtfully consider the other party's legislation in a way that could overcome the filibuster. I do think we need to get rid of the filibuster. People who live in states, every state has two senators. California is the size of a country and has just as many uh, senators as, as Wyoming, which means that Wyoming voters have a lot more re representation in the Senate. And that's fine. But I think when you use the filibuster to give them even more power, that means most of the country, the things that they want are not happening. And look at the COVID relief bill. 68% of Americans support that, which means that there are some Republicans and Democrats who support that bill. But in the Senate, Senate Republicans have said we are not supporting this. And so that's why it's going through the budget reconciliation process that only requires a simple majority. But if, if we can't get Republicans to literally give people resources to make it through a pandemic, I don't think that we can trust them to pass this bill. And to your question about uh, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema, um, you know, they have said that they don't want to do this unless they are pushed to. And I don't know if democracy reform is something that's going to push them to do it. But Joe Manchin has been someone who is supportive of voting rights. I would assume uh, Kirsten Sinema is too. But Kirsten Sinema, she <laughs> represents Arizona. I think it's a little crazy that she, I understand, you know, maybe she has her views on the filibuster itself, but um, to not support access to voting seems off, especially in a state where Republicans are literally right now trying to roll back access to the ballot. If we had better senators, I think we could figure out a way to compromise and come up with a strong bill. Uh, and I, I honestly think Democrats would do that if that was an, if that was an honest option on the table. But what I've seen from the Republican Party since over, I mean, more than the past few years, but uh, under Mitch McConnell's leadership is just, they want power. And that is the focus. And if we, I, I'll shut up in a second, but I, I don't think it's very clear to a lot of people how dire of a situation we're in. If we don't pass some type of voting reform bill, I don't know what our democracy is going to look like moving forward, because a lie was told about this election. And that lie is the basis for which more voter suppression is happening. And once we get to a point that people's vote does not matter enough to change leadership, then I don't know what kind of society we're living in. But I, I we will be living under uh, minority rule and the rest of us won't be able to do anything about it. Uh, do you want to answer? And then I guess kind of a broader question about the filibuster in general. Yeah, well, I think it's a really daunting question. And Barbara and Shaniqua have both made good points. And it's circling back to something Barbara said before. The reason to be cautious about eliminating the filibuster is because, you know, what goes around will come around. And if you're in charge one time, you may want it because you want to get your agenda passed. And it may work very vividly against you, as we saw in the Supreme Court, you know, nominations passing by majority vote. My problem with the filibuster, as it's constituted in modern practice, and I don't want to get too down in the weeds here, but the truth is, we think of the filibuster as a burden for those doing the filibustering, because we think of Jimmy Stewart and Mr. Smith goes to Washington, standing up there till he's hoarse and collapses. It's really always been easy for the filibusters. It's been hard for the people who want to break the filibuster, because they have to produce quorums. They have to produce enough members to you know, keep the business of the Senate going. One or two filibusters can be on the floor at any one time, but the opponent party has to be able to field a lot of shock troops to keep the Senate going in the face of the filibuster and to finally wear them down. So that's much harder. What I don't understand, and people whom I've talked to, veteran congressional aides who were there at the time of the passage, say, of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which I wrote a book about, and granted, the politics of the country were structurally so different then, it's almost not applicable. But what is applicable is nowadays the mere threat of a filibuster, the mere threat of a filibuster stops action, stops the vote, 
and makes everyone give up. I wonder what would happen if those who intended to filibuster actually had to conduct a real old-fashioned, round-the-clock, exhausting filibuster, which would be on public display and which would rally people. You know, remember in the Civil Rights Act of 1964, there were constant round-the-clock prayer vigils on the lawn of Congress. There were churches and groups from all over the country who came to Washington and, you know, talk about demonstrations of democracy. There were constant manifestations of public pressure. And church groups, broad interfaith coalition brought pressure to bear. There's a famous story, Carl Mont, a Republican senator from North Dakota, who had no black constituents really to speak of at all, nevertheless took pro-cloture, pro-civil rights votes because he got a lot of pressure from church groups. And he was overheard in the Senate cloakroom to say when he took a pro-civil rights vote procedurally one day, I hope that satisfies those two goddamn bishops who called me last night. And I mean, we need a little more of that in the Senate today, where if somebody's going to filibuster, really make them do it. And maybe that we have to suffer through Ted Cruz reading Green Eggs and Ham or something else. But I, I do think it might change the willingness to do it if people just didn't collapse in a heap at the mere threat of a filibuster. And I think the savviest thing that President Biden is doing right now is saying he's choosing to define, he's willfully choosing to define bipartisanship, not as getting 10 or 12 votes in the Senate, but getting 65% approval in the public and mm -hmm. getting state and local governors getting, I'm sure he's going to have Larry Hogan and who knows whatever other Republican governors and mayors from around the city. And if those people are supporting his COVID relief package and they put it through on reconciliation and they pass it by one vote, I think Biden should just declare victory and say, I have broad bipartisan support among the American public, and that's what I'm hanging my hat on. Now, Shaniqua, this is what I grant you. It gets much harder on something like you know, the Voting Rights Act and trying to overdo uh, Shelby County versus Holder, which can't be passed by reconciliation theoretically. And there, there I plead no law. I don't, I don't know what the answer is. And, and it may be that that's the sort of thing that will impel reluctant people like Kristen Cinema and Joe Manchin and Joseph Robinette Biden Jr. to, you know, end the filibuster. Thank you, Krishan. So we've got a couple more minutes left. I have a few questions in the Q&A that I'm going to read. They're both from uh, Susan Lippman, and I'll read the first one here. I'm hearing a lot of talk about the lack of incentives and inertia in getting things done. What can be done to change and revitalize our politicians into action? Barbara, you want to take that? Well, I mean, sometimes there you don't want to get things done. I mean, there's some issues that you don't, you know, one side doesn't want to have, to have something to happen. But again, I think as somebody who did pass quite a few bills, both in the State House and in Congress, you know, it was how do you get to 218? And so you have to find people on the other side who will work with you. You've got to build a coalition. You've got to find outside groups that support you and a diversity of groups, like Todd was mentioning, you know, when you're here, say, if you know, who needs to hear from a Catholic bishop? Who needs to hear from an environmental group? You know, whatever your issue is, usually there's a whole cohort of coalitions that you can bring to bear on it. And, and you have to do that strategy as the member, as the groups who are interested in how can you put people together? And a lot of it is, is just having people who can work well with others. I mean, there's a reason, you know, someone like a Louis Gohmert hasn't passed many bills, whereas Debbie Dingell does. Debbie Dingell comes from, you know, a position of having her husband pass bills. He got the, you know, he was somebody who had different coalitions that he worked with depending on the issue. So I think you have to be open to 
working with people on one issue that you may not agree with them on the next and finding the ways that you can do that together and not not having this ugliness where you're constantly attacking the other side or whatever that goes on. And I, and I, I think that's why each time I had a bill, I just went to the natural groups and constituencies and and each bill was different to get me to 218 but that's what your job is and it's relationships and it's working together and then it's sometimes saying well i'm gonna have to peel off this piece of it because if i go this far i might like it and some of my people do but that's going to lose me more votes on the other side so you got to get that right balance and that's what people today just kind of don't want to do they don't you're not going to get things done if you always have to have it all your way. That's why we have 218, I mean, 435 there. That's why we have a Senate that has more stops on things than the House. And all of that requires, you know, when we pass something, we want it to be good, well thought out, and to have strong support. I mean, one of the reasons we weren't able to convict the president, I thought he should be be convicted. I thought it was very clear. But there's a reason I guess we have never convicted a president in an impeachment trial is because getting two thirds of the country to agree on anything is pretty hard. So, you know, when the people speak, it's hard to undo it. But the fact that he's disgraced and, you know, still could be criminally liable and all those things is not for nothing. And it was good that there was a trial and that it was the most bipartisan conviction in history. Shaniqua? Yeah, the only thing I would add is voters play a huge role in what incentivizes elected officials. And it's not easy work, but getting more people to participate and show up and pay attention to what elected officials do can really determine how they engage. Something I always tell people is elected officials pay attention to voters, not necessarily the people who vote for them, because the people who don't vote for them have the power to take them out of office as well. But if you are not participating, they are just not prioritizing the things that are important to you. So getting more people to participate and elected officials to understand that we are watching and we will vote accordingly is another great way to get them to respond to what uh, more people want versus the small group of people who actually participate in our elections. Great. So Thank you, everybody, for joining us for our first Fellows Roundtable discussion. Our next one will be on March 24th at around 1 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. And until then, we'll see you later. Thank you for joining us on The Bully Pulpit. It helps us a lot when you subscribe and rate the show five stars wherever you get your podcast. Follow us on Twitter at USCPOL Future. That's USCPOL Future. Follow us on Facebook and YouTube and visit our website for upcoming programs. 